All right, well, um, thanks for coming to talk about music discovery. So I'm Mark Ruxin. I'm a music nut. I run a music discovery platform. Kevin? I'm Kevin Arnold. I'm, I'm also a music nut <laughs> and uh, run a events promotions business, produces uh, noise pop and Treasure Island Music Festivals and other stuff, as well as uh, currently I'm working on a new company that's not really about music discovery, but uh, previously um, ran a digital distribution company called IOTA that... Um, helped uh, independent labels sell music online. Good. Well, so um, we, we were given a vague topic to discuss. So we'll discuss the vague topic, but it's a small room, so it'd be, it'd be great to you know, hear you guys weigh in you know, throughout the conversation. But I, I guess just to, just to go back to the beginning, I mean, I think and it's funny. If you're, if you're at SF Music Tech, you'll probably agree with the statement that music discovery is a problem. But for the rest of human beings... I don't think most people wake up and say, you know, I've got a music discovery problem. They, um, they wake up and, and say, I want to listen to music. And for most people, you know, Pandora or, you know, a, an algorithmic approach to finding new music is good enough. But for, for the most peop- people, the radio on the FM dial is good enough, right? So. Yeah, sadly. Sadly. But Kevin and I were just talking about, and we're, we're the same kind of fanatical music discoverers and and it's 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 always about the next thing or at least finding that handful of things along the way you know to make kind of life life worth living and and you want to find the artists that are gonna you know stick with you for a long time so i don't know 20 years ago how did that what'd you do how'd you how'd you discover bands yeah i mean 20 years ago i think that um well this this stuff changes throughout your life, right? I mean, 20 years ago, largely, was still a uh, open SF Weekly or the Bay Guardian every week and look at every club listing and see who's coming through town and um, pursue that way, as well as through, uh, through the media. I guess we'd had some radio, but nothing really good commercial. And at that point, it was, um, it was KUSF and, uh, and Calix, right? So, but most of all, it's some exposure to those places and mostly friends. I think it's, it's word of mouth is, uh, is what it boils down to. Yeah, I mean, I, I get if I flash back twenty or twenty-five years, I had that Jack Black guy at my local radio, or my local record store, and I'd walk in and he'd diagnose my problem and he'd, he'd give me the answer in the form of a record. and And I used to read magazines like Option Magazine and Spin Magazine when it was good. and And there's a whole bunch of kind of defunct ways I used to find music, but it wasn't the radio. It was people, and it was you know a handful of curators that wrote editorial, etc. And, you know, I think gone are the days where there are Jack Blacks thrusting records on you that can diagnose your taste and come up with a solution. But starting 10 years ago, you know, everything changed. The Internet made it easier to actually get music. Not as easy it is as to listen today, but, you know. Internet starts in earnest, say, I don't know, 15 years ago. What were you doing then? Yeah, well, 15 years ago is an interesting time to look at, right? Um... So, what, 1998? At that point in time, I was more working in technology, but still running music festivals. And there was starting to be, there was no Napster yet, there was starting to be some MP3s online and some services like Good Noise, which eventually became eMusic. But um, during that time period, all of that stuff really exploded. And, and I actually worked at a, at a company that was meant to provide a discovery route to for these new MP3s at the time, which was Listen.com, right? It eventually built Rhapsody, but it started out as like, we're going to be Yahoo for MP3s, and you can come here, and, you know, they had tons of people. Tim Cork was reviewing 80 MP3s a day and uh, p- posting up listings, and 
would people go there and discover music and reviews? Yeah, some did, but I don't think it you know became the way at the time, right? Napster sort of blew that one out of the water, I think, a year later. Yeah, I, I guess I remember flying to Seattle in, in the late 90s, and they hadn't yet launched a music store, but they, they weren't going to build an editorial team, but in good Amazon fashion, you know, they said, what would you do? And I, I said, I would, you know, effectively let all these aspiring music writers write the reviews for you. And, and uh, lo and behold, you have Amazon collaborative filtering engine driven by crowdsourced reviews. And I think it was kind of neat to see that, people that bought this, bought that. But it didn't take very long to figure out that you, you weren't going to, you know, discover Alt-J, which we were just talking about through, you know, before everybody else, if you were just looking at collaborative filtering answers or if you were just waiting for the one Alt-J song to pop up on the Pandora station that would have referenced it two years ago instead of, instead of last week. So, you know, I think the Internet is ultimately the best place to solve the problem of music discovery, but I think, as we were talking about earlier, and so flash forward to today, you have all these great listening environments. So you have Spotify and RDO and Rhapsody and soon... Daisy or Beats by Dre, whatever it is. But in reality, Kevin and I were talking about this before, I discover music three ways. Oddly enough, one of them is a radio station, so Sirius XMU does a great job. I mean, it's still radio, so it's repetitive, but, you know, it's the first radio station I've ever really discovered music from. Two is you read a handful of music blogs that are totally dialed in your taste and you get new releases. And then the third is, you know, Kevin or someone like Kevin comes over and, you know, insists, says you must listen to London Grammar or whatever, whatever the record of the past week was. And because he told me to do it, I'll go look for it. But I think it's still massive unfulfilled promise on the web to connect people to people and curators to audiences. And, and so I think that's kind of the conversation that we wanted to have. Kevin. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. So this the topic the title of the panel, we may are making up the topic as we go along, but the title is fan-based discovery, right? And so out of those things that you just said, which qualifies as fan-based discovery? Like, how much of it is, is fan-based? This should mean about, to me, when we, that concept means something about, like, word of mouth and social discovery and people connecting people. But um, radio and blogs are okay, sure, maybe they're powered and curated by fans, and that's why we go to them as filters we trust, right? But ultimately, is, does that count to you, fan-based discovery? What is, what's, what's the most effective fan-based discovery platform or experience that you could think about? Yeah, I mean, I think, it's, I think the answer to the question is, is, is the same now as it was then. I mean, it's people insisting that you, Kevin, listen to this record. I mean, it's, it's word of mouth, and I think fans... Um, I think the people that write for the MP3 blogs that matter are fans of these bands. They, they really are, and they've, you know, fortunately, the Internet has created a platform for people to make a living writing reviews for someone other than, you know, Rolling Stone. So what's different than 20 years ago from that type of, of discovery? There's just tons more of it surfaced, right? So how does that... Well, I think... Is in, that helpful, or...? There are, you know, I think the balance between pe people-powered discovery and uh, algorithmic discovery is a, is a fine one, right? So, um, you know, at the end of the day, for most people, 90% of discovery problems are solved by algorithms. So Amazon and Pandora and even the radio stations on Spotify and RDO will surface a large amount of like content to people. Um, but I think, I think it's the curation level that, 
has changed. And I think back then the people that were, you know, printing zines and distributing them for fun can actually make a living and, and put signals into an ecosystem where, you know, algorithms are influenced in a way that, you know, a, a zine couldn't have done 30 years ago because the distribution just wasn't there. But do you think the algorithmic discovery solution is enough? Like, where do humans get involved in that? And what is that? How does that matter? So I don't know. You think about Pandora and stuff, and, well, I would argue that that's not algorithmically driven. That's what the whole genome project has been about all the time, right? And I think a lot of people in the music technology business, myself probably included, thought, wow, you're a music technology company, and you have to have a whole bunch of people listening to and writing about and describing all this stuff. It seems a bit off, but at the same time, I think it's probably really necessary. Like, what are other pure algorithmic ways that have succeeded without that human uh, interaction? Well, I mean, I think Hype Machine is probably the, the ultimate convergence of a whole bunch of individual curators um, producing a signal that produces a list that you can listen to in exactly that way. And, I, you know, I would argue that although the Genome Project, granted the music is diagnosed by, you know, human beings and um, it is a different kind of algorithm than just pure data, um, it's, it's still an algorithm. And I think, you know, we can talk, Kevin and I, I launched a company that, we can show you in a minute, but Kevin and I launched a little, con we're launching contest today. Kevin runs uh, Treasure Island Music Festival, so we, you know, created a way for people to win tickets. But the idea, um, the idea would be people, if you could, and again, and this is where I think we've talked about this before, the social networks do a not very good job of allowing people to follow vertical tastes very specifically. So in theory, say you wanted to discover music using Twitter you'd have to create a tweet deck column specifically around a specific number of artists, and then you'd have to filter out the non-music-related content there. And most people aren't going to do that. So if you look at Facebook or Twitter as a way to follow you know, musicians or artists that you care about, um, specifically, your feed is too cluttered. Increasingly, they're algorithmically programmed to you. So the feed that you get on Facebook is, is not necessarily everything that's coming to you. It's the stuff that's optimized against you know, Facebook monetization strategies against, uh, you know, the people that you interact with the most. So it's really hard to use, uh, in fact, the best, generically the best platform to connect with people who have similar taste. So I think going forward, whether it's, you know, good recs for books or, you know, Tastemaker or other platforms for music, I think what people want are super vertically um, specific social networks where people opt in and out of the people that they care about. So there are probably 10 or 20 tastemakers on the planet. For every person in this room, you probably have no idea who they are. But if you could find those people and only follow the stuff that they're listening to, the stuff that they're adding, the stuff that they're talking about, the shows that they're going, you would have a pretty good personal signal. And I think, you know, it's the reduction of, you know, you being one of five, you know, million follow followers of, you know, Radiohead to you following the 10 people that are going to turn you on to the 10 or 15 artists a year that you want to follow. I mean, you know, that's, that's our bias. And, you know, I think it happens at the artist level, not necessarily at the song level, but. I yeah, I agree. I think I'm interested off of what you said, like how many, uh, if we can do the show of hands thing, like how many people feel like you discover a lot of music on Facebook? Wow. That's like four. Hands. <laughs> so what about Twitter as music discovery? How much new music do you find on Twitter? About five. All right. Uh, how about, a, a, a one or two MP3 blogs or music blogs. All right. Yeah. Yeah, Pitchfork. Yeah. yeah. You could just say, how about Pitchfork, Rolling Stone, Spin Media, major media outlets? 
wow less than blogs. All right, and how many people mostly find the music that they're listening to through their friends? Nothing, nothing has changed. And let me ask this yet, one. Yet everything has changed. In a live music experience, such as a festival, where how many of you have found somebody you had no idea about and gone on to be huge fans with? So, right. So this is what's super interesting and important, right? It's the serendipitous stuff, I think, that, uh, and the visceral stuff, I think, that is, uh, it's, it's human contact and exposure, right? So. How many people here go to one or two music festivals a year? And, and when you get there, do you know exactly, have you charted your route specifically, or do you kind of just listen to the, the hum of the buzz and just kind of follow the, the, the noise of the folks that you're with? So everybody knows exactly what they want to see ahead of time? Show of hands. People need to, you know, a curator, a Sherpa when they get there. That's, so how many people really appreciate a music festival that only has two stages where you can see every <laughs> single band? Uh, <laughs> all right. That's Not far away from each other. <laughs> nice. <The> <laughs> what about radio? You asked about all the groups. Yeah, so, so radio. Radio? How about well, online? Start with, start with online radio. And then traditional t- terrestrial is the word we like to use, right? Wow, that's a very modern audience. I get satellite radio probably probably is its own category, right? Sure. Yeah. I don't... There we go. Yeah. I think you can actually get serious over the internet now, but you have to pay for a car subscription, which is kind of weird. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, how about YouTube? People. By okay, let me ask you this way. So when you use YouTube versus SoundCloud, is it? Um, active, you're driving, you're going in looking for something, or is it things being pushed to you that happen to be on those platforms? Can we do a show of hands on the, on the pushing versus looking for YouTube? Pushing? How many, how many, if you're YouTube, if you discover through YouTube, how much of it is sent to you versus you going to YouTube and looking for something? So mo- more people find it through having it sent to you versus you go and browse and discover. Uh, YouTube's on recommendations. Yeah, interesting stuff. Like artists put it on SoundCloud, and fans put other artists on YouTube. Right. Yeah. That's definitely true. Radio. So, so the it sounds like, for the most part, everyone is going to have some sort of online music experience where they get, or where they either buy or rent music from folks. Is any, so, show of hands, are people satisfied with the discovery algorithms or solutions um, put forth through Spotify, RDO, SoundCloud, YouTube? Because, you know, for the most part, it's still, it, it's like looking for a needle in an increasingly bigger haystack, right? I, I feel like when I go to SoundCloud or uh, YouTube, I would have no idea where to start unless a link showed up in a, you know, an email uh, that somebody sent. But, again... Uh, Usage is growing, so clearly people are find it, finding a way. So those platforms have not yet solved the problem. They're doing better. I don't, I don't know that SoundCloud's main goal is to be a discovery platform. I, I just start to be like a, a platform for artists to get their music out as like a tool. And you can use that as a tool to embed on different sites and to host. I didn't know that its first priority was to be a discovery platform. So I actually don't see it failing at all. I think it's, it's incredible. It's changed my whole game. Um, I discover artists 
in different ways through word of mouth or social media and or concerts and then I follow them on SoundCloud, I get pushed updates and I get music to perform most of my friends because I connected. I it works great for me. I don't see a problem. Yeah, I'm not suggesting that it's necessarily a problem. I, I think it's more of an opportunity for someone like SoundCloud to help. I mean, there is so much music. You know, it's like the early in the early days, you used to hear these statistics out of Google. You know, there's eight hours of video uploaded to YouTube every minute, and then increasingly that number is like, whatever, 75 hours of, of video uploaded to YouTube every minute. I think SoundCloud's going through a similar growth pattern, and I think every time that number gets bigger, the problem becomes that much harder. And so, again, you're right. They, they started their life as a something and now it's become a place where lots of people not just you know just listen to music or you know upload it uh, if you're an artist but you know people are actually looking for the music before it becomes distributed through the major platforms right i think that's interesting i mean if you look at both soundcloud and youtube i think they came out as as platforms to enable people to post share connect right as opposed to let me create a destination for people to come to and find things and write out of that organically because they made it super easy to make those connections and sharing and thing it's why they've gotten to where they are and yeah i don't know i think it's it's interesting to look at both ways one is more tool versus discovery side or portal i believe but certainly both are valuable and in a way it's just like it makes it way easier for us to get those fan to fan human connections and discovery experiences which is uh, a great thing Another quick question before we do a question. So for the people in this room, is, is music mostly about songs or bands? Because I, we're, we're old, so we think it's about bands. But, uh, you know, if you talk to the folks at, at uh, you know, at Daisy, it's all about songs. And, you know, albums aren't listened to, et cetera. So, all right, so let's do, let's do a little vote. Songs, bands. Wow. That's, that is really evenly distributed. I'm is, super surprised. Yeah. I'm sure we could have a good argument around, uh, around that one, too. Well, I think, you know, one, one of the, the A-support metric that you could look at is the growth of, uh, of festivals over the past 10 years. So people go to see bands. They don't run from stage to stage singing, singing songs, necessarily. So I think for people that do think it's about, I don't know. That is an awesome festival idea. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I did see it at Coachella this year. Just like 40 stages. <laughs> One at a time. I did see a bunch of people running towards the, uh, the the Bauer tent at Coachella this year, hoping to get the Harlem Shake song, and then mass exodus out after that. Right, which is another good question over there. Yeah, anyone has a question, please use the mic. Yeah, we got like five minutes, and then the other half of the uh, panel changes. You did a query earlier on the people, how they found different music. You didn't mention podcasts. Are people discovering music via podcasts? One. Okay. <laughs> a lot of DJs have their own podcasts and if you're not subscribing to them you're really missing out because if you if you like a certain sound that's that's a great easy way it gets pushed to you automatically you don't even have to look for it it's like you're getting curated music sent directly to you and I, I started doing it a couple of years ago you know go to SoundCloud or iTunes either way and a lot of your favorite DJs have their own weekly podcast sometimes it's monthly sometimes it's just whenever they can do it so I guess I'm the only one. <laughs> okay, before we take one more question, Kevin and I collaborated on a little project, so we want everyone in the room to get a chance to win a couple of VIP tickets to, to Treasure Island in a few weeks, and uh, it also will give me an opportunity or us an opportunity to talk about uh, the solution that we set up to solve a discovery problem. So I launched a company called Tastemaker X a couple of years ago. We started, our first product was a virtual stock market for bands, and the idea was that 
if you bought virtual, so we give everybody virtual currency, we priced every band through an algorithm, and then you can see tr- people that are trending and artists that are trending through the increase of a price. Uh, we relaunched the platform to make it a lot simpler because some people didn't get it and some people didn't like to mix metaphors. But in any event, so the new platform looks like this. So this is actually day two of the Treasure Island Music Festival. So the idea is that everybody builds 12 artist collections. You can drag and drop the collection, uh, the artist, into different positions here. Um, And then we take a look at when you added the artist, in what position did you put the artist, and then uh, the social data that's happening in the ecosystem to see if you're, in fact, the tastemaker. And then the other thing you can do is just go and listen to somebody's collection. So you can actually go and listen to day two of Treasure Island. Um, on Spotify or audio or the other, um, the other music systems that we have hooked up. You can do research. So if you've never heard of, uh, say, Cayucas, you can click on the artist. We have these artist pages that have uh, top fans. So the idea is if you don't know anyone that's in a Cayucas, you could click on a collection and find that they have um, hopefully very similar taste. And then you can actually just look at charts. So, again. So how do they win those tickets? Uh, so, <laughs> so you can go here. So you got to do a couple things, because one of the things Kevin wanted to find out is um, what, you know, what artists that he's showing, who are the most popular artists? And we'll be able to know over time who, how many people put these artists in the first position, how many people put the artists in the second position, and then ultimately, to the extent that you like these artists in the first place, um, you'll create your own collection. So go to Tastemaker X, uh, or Facebook Tastemaker X. Um, all you have to do is sign up, build a collection, uh, like the contest, and uh, we'll randomly pick a winner uh, next Saturday. So, um, um, do you have any intention of connecting this conference with Treasure Island down the road? What kind of connection would you imagine? <laughs> like something like a, like the big like the big Miami music conference, like something like that, making it more. Um, you know, I mean, I guess I'd say we have connected uh, in, in the past, right? So last week, Brian, uh, Brian timed things such that it was during the same week and, and had a bit of a nice little SF Music Week thing. We've actually talked about a bunch of different things, um, trying to do some on-island uh, hackathon-type stuff with some of the other local companies that work in those areas. And, um, I mean, yeah, you know, I don't know. I live in both worlds, and so I'm totally into it. Uh, it's always uh, sometimes they come together super nicely, and sometimes it's harder. But, uh, but yes. Oh, one other thing, too. When you build a collection or when you look at his collection, um, the flip view of the collection that you build is, uh, is an aggregated feed of all the uh, social. So this is my collection. When you look at the feed, you'll have all of the people that you're following. So these are all the transactions that they have. So somebody added Parquet Courts or Radiohead. You'll have uh, photos and videos and tour dates and new releases. So this, is, this was the answer that we had to it's tough to follow artists on Facebook and Twitter. So build a collection, and you'll get you know, everything that you wanted to know about these artists pulled into one feed. And it's totally filtered for music. It's not, uh, not going to have any of the other non-music-related stuff. So anyway, I think we have time for one more question. Someone maybe that hasn't asked one? All right, maybe someone that has. More of a request. <laughs> so um, I guess we've, we've talked a little bit about how the ability to discover music online has just kind of fueled basically the uh, concert, uh, the music festival format for concerts. Um, And I was wondering, I was kind of interested to hear both your perspective on this. How do you think that, you know, those two kind of sectors between MP3 blogs, sites such as platforms such as Tastemaker X, can kind of create some kind of synergy between them and music festivals uh, where kind of both can benefit and continue to kind of really flourish and do well? 
Well, I mean, I think you're seeing things like the Pitchfork Music Festival become the, you know, physical manifestation of, you know, 20 years of, of love and passion around uh, certain artists. I mean, what's, what's funny, though, is I think the more specific you are as a music blog like Pitchfork, the more alienating, uh, I think. And, and if anyone saw the Dave Grohl keynote at South by last year, you know, I think he got up there and said, fuck, fuck Pitchfork. They're, they're a bunch of haters. You know, like, it doesn't matter what kind of music you love, you should just love music. So... You know, I, I think that you can build a brand and then, you know, build a festival that, you know, rolls fluidly off of it. Um, or, you know, you have festivals that are becoming more and more mass and are losing their kind of central focus. I mean, Bonnaroo is a very different festival than it was in 2003, and so is Coachella. Um, yeah, so, so it's a noise pop, but, I mean, stuff changes and evolves. Sure. Right? So, um, yeah, I think it's an interesting question. If you think about it, I'd say that, like, there's inherently a connection between the growth of these two things. And if you look back at last 10 to 15 years, it's very easy and clear to see, even though I've never thought about it until you asked this question, that the rise of music festivals exactly parallels the rise of the internet. And the reason here is that the internet democratized access to many ways to all of these small emerging bands. And people know more bands and they can get this buzz. And so you didn't have these events. I mean, certainly festivals existed at the scale they do now in Europe before they did in the US. But even there, there was a ballooning of this time, I think, where many smaller bands were able to come in and, and get this exposure to this that I think was very much mirrored by the, uh, the growth of uh, the internet and access to more of that music, so. I'm not in charge, but. Well, I think we have to call it. We have now Auntie coming, so let's thank Kevin and Mark for their time.